This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. I'm in Southern California, searching for the grave of a very mysterious woman at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale. It hasn't been easy because there's a gap next to her husband's grave but no marker for her. I've managed to track down a maintenance worker who wants to help. So when I go to, this is how I found her to begin with. Lot 107, space one. I just know where the hundreds are. If this goes, I think it goes up. It must be right by the road, right? Mm. It showed up when I did a search on the website for it. You found it? This is it. So this was her husband. It is unmarked because she's buried right here. That's her husband. She's a murder victim. I'm a journalist. Soon we realized that there's simply no grave marker because her case was so controversial, so unsettling, that her family didn't want her grave vandalized. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your help. Mm -hmm. I mean, my goodness, I would have never found this, I don't think. Thank you. Our victim's story began in Los Angeles in 1922 along with the story of her killer. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a true crime historian and author of American Sherlock and Death in the Air. And this is our new season of Tenfold More Wicked. In this podcast, we've traveled from Gilded Age New York to 1820s Scotland to 1935 Texas. And now we're landing in 1920s Hollywood with a story about a woman with a huge grudge and violent tendencies. It's our first female killer, and we're calling this season Tiger Woman. This is a story about a family, a very famous family with a lot of secrets. My aunts, they just didn't want to talk about it. They just, you know, if it came up, it was whispered about. It wasn't something, you know, you broadcast. Do you really care? about being included in the Mellon legacy? I mean, does it matter at this point in your life? Well, I always tell the kids that you're part of uh, the Mellons. This season is about an absolutely fabulous time period. 
the kind of money that was floating around in Los Angeles in the 1920s was huge. So I think that that's perfect for someone running a con. People are going to be blinded by greed. This story is a thriller where the killer simply vanishes. It was the three sisters that kind of put their heads together and came up with this hogwash. But it played. She knew how to play to the newspapers. It just doesn't really add up. A lot of stuff in the story doesn't seem to add up. Yeah, yeah, and we just let it go. It's a mystery. It's a mystery, but maybe you'll be able to find more answers. I've come to Nashville to meet Daniel Phillips. No one knows more about this story than Daniel, and he's really invested in it. It's part of his family's history. Daniel's a direct descendant of one of the wealthiest families in America, the Mellons. And the Mellons are one of two families at the center of one of the most brutal murders in America in the 1920s. Daniel and I meet at a conference room in a hotel near the airport. Hey, hi, Daniel. How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thank you. This is lovely. This is perfect. Thank you. Daniel's relative was Thomas Mellon. Thomas had become a king of banking and finance by the early 1900s, but he came from much more humble beginnings in rural Ireland. He had read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography as a boy, and he envied Franklin's rise to fame from poverty. The family immigrated to America, where Thomas eventually went to college, then law school. He opened a law firm and eventually became a judge. Then came a pivotal shift in his life. Thomas Mellon opened Mellon Bank in Pittsburgh in 1869. The family's legacy was born. Thomas, you know, was born in Ireland, came to the U.S. and made good. And he worked hard at it. And he raised his sons to be the same way, and they took wealth and increased it even more. So the family is recognized as one of the premier families in the country. And yes, I'm a part of that. Sounds like a blessing, right? Not really. Thomas Mellon's brother, Samuel, was Daniel's great-great-grandfather, and Samuel wasn't wealthy. He was a luckless businessman who started as a terrible clerk in his own brother's law office. Soon, Samuel was forced to close a string of failing grocery stores. He lost money in poor real estate transactions. His brother Thomas believed that Samuel was too trusting. Any good grifter could con him after just one handshake. Samuel Mellon eventually moved his family from the Northeast to Texas, So that meant that the Mellon fortune never trickled down to Daniel Phillips and his relatives. My part of the family tree was the ones that didn't do very well. And Samuel was the one that was supposed to hold up his end, but he didn't. But he was a nice guy and, you know, uh, Thomas loved him. Thomas Mellon, the successful brother, had eight children, including a boy named Andrew. Andrew Mellon became one of the most prolific and successful industrialists in the 20th century. 
and he was an icon in politics. Andrew was the United States Secretary of Treasury for most of the 1920s. Samuel Mellon and his family in Texas were poor, almost destitute in comparison. He and his family drifted around the country, allowing his brother Thomas to bail him out of trouble whenever he fell for a swindle or a bad deal. Thomas Mellon was the patriarch of the Mellon Empire. He's the one that created it. And the thing with him is that he was about 18 years older than Samuel Mellon, who was his younger brother. But he loved Samuel with all his heart. There was nothing that Samuel did that he was not going to change his mind about how he felt about his brother. Daniel says that Samuel once started a bank in Texas hoping to be an enormous success like his big brother. It failed. Samuel always felt he was always smarter than his brother, and he wasn't, okay? And he would always try to come up with things that he felt would make him more successful, and they didn't. Every time he got into trouble, his, his brother Thomas would always step in and try to salvage as much as they could. So Samuel didn't have the melon acumen for making money, but he did have a knack for making kids. He had six children, including a daughter named Nellie. Nellie Mellon later became Nellie Phillips, and she had five children. One of them was a boy with an unusual name, Armor. It was a family name from the Mellons. If this true crime had been a play, Armor would be one of the leads, both the protagonist and the antagonist. The Phillips family was very religious, but Daniel says that from the beginning, Armor was a drifter and a grifter thanks to his swindling father. Armour was Daniel's great-uncle. His father, who was my great-grandfather, D.W. Phillips, he came from uh, North Carolina. He was in a very large family, farming. He had had some run-ins with the law in Wake County, North Carolina, around the Raleigh area. Found the need to get out of the state. He ended up coming to Texas. He still had a wild side because he changed his name to avoid being caught by the North Carolina authorities. So that was kind of the background that Armour inherited. Of course, we're all offered choices in life. Armour didn't have to be a con artist, but at a young age, he decided to work smarter, not harder, and a little more devious. With Armour, he was very much a moving target. He did not stay very long before either he got in trouble or his old troubles caught up with him, and he exited stage left. Armour seemed destined for a doomed life with a tragic ending, and it all started when he was 15 years old and he spotted a pretty young girl, another child from a family of drifters. Just like me, Claire Weaver was a native Texan. She was born in 1898 in Waco, just about an hour north of Austin. She had seven siblings, but when she met Armour, only four were still alive. Claire's family moved several times. There never seemed to be a permanent residence. Her father, John Weaver, frequently traveled the country in a covered wagon with no real destination. Claire's older sister, Ola May, said he didn't know more than get settled down when he would pull up and leave again. The Weavers had come from hard times. 
I mean, hard scrabble lives. They probably drifted from being drifters to being grifters. Mother Weaver, you know, she was the one that uh, was the long-suffering mother that, you know, was hoping things would get better for all of her children, particularly Clara. It had always been difficult for the Weavers. No money, no consistent jobs, and no real prospects. Clara seemed traumatized from the start. When she was four, her family moved to Fort Worth. When she was eight, she began walking to school every day by herself, just a few blocks from her home. And every day, she passed by Mrs. Thompson, a local fortune teller. They chatted each day until one day... Mrs. Thompson invited Clara inside and shut the door. The woman had a bag packed for them both. Clara Weaver was being kidnapped. Eight-year-old Clara Weaver was panicked as she sat on the train. She cried the whole way. She knew that her mother would be worried. The fortune teller had told the conductor to let her off in Wichita, Kansas. Clara hadn't been there before. She didn't know anyone there. A man with a long beard met her in Kansas and took her to a family. Mrs. Thompson eventually came to the house and declared that Clara would be her daughter from now on. After several weeks, Clara slipped out and told a neighbor that she had been kidnapped. The neighbor confronted Mrs. Thompson and was nearly beaten to death. When the police arrived, the story of Clara's kidnapping spilled out and she was returned home to Texas. After all of that trauma, after being returned to her family, there was another tragedy. Clara's father died in a motel room in Fort Worth while he was praying in bed. Clara's mother was devastated. They found him in that position, and he was just a laborer. All the way to this day he died, he just worked with his hands. He was not well-educated. You know, she was able to survive because she kept the family close, almost codependent. Tell me more about the codependence. For example, the family stayed as a unit pretty much from the time they were old enough to be adults, when most people go off and create their own life. They stayed pretty much close together. So the world seemed to be against the Weavers. The girls and their mother all struggled, but they leaned on each other. Clara went to school to learn music. She loved singing and playing instruments. Performing was her passion. She learned how to act and how to deceive. She lived by her wits. That's the way she'd always lived as a child. All, you know, again, when you're drifting around hither to yon, you don't have any firm home base. You don't have probably a lot of reason to not look at the dark side. Clara craved stability. She lived with her older sister, Ola May in Galveston, for a while and kept going to school. And then she moved to Houston. And everything changed. She was 14 when she met 15-year-old Armour Phillips at a party. He wasn't wealthy, but he was charming and cute. He took her to dances and to picture shows. Clara seemed to fall in love with him very quickly. A great and wonderful love had come into my life, she would say about Armour. He proposed to her when she was just 16 and they decided to elope in Houston on November 13, 1913. Joan Renner is a true crime author and blogger. 
she was completely devoted to armor. And they ran away together as young teenagers. So (laughs) she was as bonded to him as she probably was to any member of her family. She told people, he was the one man who filled my heart and mind. I was extremely happy. They were a dashing young couple. But swindling seemed to be in Armour's DNA. Clara never knew when he was telling the truth, even to her. And he didn't quite understand why she was so passionately devoted to him. But there was a reason. Troubled, I think, is a good way of putting it. The relationship between him and Clara was, well, it was destined to be bad for both of them. It wasn't long before Clara's doctor delivered some devastating news. She wasn't able to have children. She would never be a mother, and it destroyed her dreams of having a family. All of the suffering and the struggles she had gone through with her family in the past seemed minor compared to this. And now she looked at Armour differently. He was her baby. He was her child. So that relationship right away, it's, it's a skewed dynamic. He's got a lot of the power and control, which he would have had anyway, given the time. Armour's get-rich scams had already complicated his life, leaving him wealthy but stressed. Author Claudine Burnett says that his wife's constant clinging made it worse. That whole concept could have alienated Armour quite a bit this overwhelming love being smothered. The couple lived in Houston until the start of World War I when Armour was drafted in 1917. While he was gone, Clara rekindled her love of music and dance. Her beauty and talent earned her stints in vaudeville with the Follies of New York. She danced and sang at theaters across the country, basking in the attention from an audience. But she never really became a star. What she really wanted was for Armour's safe return from the war. And when he did arrive in Houston, she abandoned the stage to be a homemaker. But not for long. Houston felt a bit drab for the Phillips. And Armour's cons were most successful when he took them on the road. He eyed Los Angeles and its deep-pocketed investors. Clara's eyes brightened at the prospect of being on a Hollywood movie set. So in 1920, the couple invited Clara's sister, Etta May, her husband, and Clara's mother to move with them to California. This would be where Clara's life would become derailed. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. 
I'm in Santa Monica, standing on one of the most beautiful beaches in Southern California. I can see why so many people come here for the weather. The cool breeze is fantastic. I appreciate that because it's 103 degrees back home in Texas right now. For almost two centuries, people have relocated here for this view. The migration to California started more than 170 years ago with the gold rush. In 1848, someone found gold in the Sierra Nevada foothills. That discovery sent the country into a frenzy, and about 300,000 people streamed into California, all looking for wealth. The American economy began to flourish thanks to gold fever. And two years later, California officially became a state. Fifty years later, prospectors of a different kind struck gold again liquid gold. They discovered huge amounts of oil near Los Angeles, and suddenly, L.A. was rich. But it had already been well off thanks to agriculture. UCLA history professor Jan Reef says Los Angeles offered promise to just about anyone who could afford a train ticket. The trains would bring people out for $5 and make them pay full fare if they went back, so they tended to stay. They believed that they could make an enormous amount of money. All they had to do was find oil. Central California may have been represented by oil well workers and farmhands, but this was Hollywood in the 1920s. Glitz, glamour, film stars, and money. Lots of money. And there were loads of pretty young women, all looking for a big break and a nice paycheck. And if they were lucky, a loyal husband. Mostly they came to L.A. to escape their normal humdrum lives, a ticket out of whatever stale state they had left behind. Hollywood moguls were building hotels just for these naive women. Things were shifting. Victorian America was too uptight and far too stodgy. Just the presence of those women means that there's a loosening of those most traditional values. So now there was a new type of young lady strolling around L.A., redefining how women dress and act. This was the age of the famous flapper. The short skirts, the bare sleeves, the loose boy-looking kind of thing that was still perceived as being much sexier. And somebody who goes out dancing, somebody who smokes. And it was a big problem for L.A.'s increasingly powerful, devout Christians who still believed in chaperones and chastity. So you had the people leading religious crusades about all the corruption in Los Angeles. At the same time, you had this freewheeling lifestyle that the movies were projecting and that there was a lot of money to be made. California's religious leaders blamed Hollywood for dragging the country into eternal damnation. Some of the things that we see now, again, the fear that the movie industry was going to cause all these women to totally lose their morals and their scruples, and it plays out in the politics. The city was literally divided down the center. Hollywood and its gross opulence on one side, and religion with its rigid morals on the other. When you think about L.A. in the 20s, you have Hollywood really starting to gear up and get going. But what you also have are probably 
more religious cults than anywhere else in the United States. And Los Angeles was this strange mix of Hollywood decadence and almost fundamentalist religions. People came out here for the weather and they came out here to express themselves in various ways. There was bound to be trouble. Soon there were stars emerging from both religion and Hollywood, polarizing figures who shaped modern-day Los Angeles. And in 1922, one woman seemed to embody both, a charismatic Protestant evangelist named Amy Simple McPherson. We have no need to doubt God. God lives. God's word is true. McPherson preached on radio shows, which made her a media celebrity in the 1920s. And she was well-known for founding the Foursquare Church. Oh, thank God for the power of faith. She had gotten so powerful in L.A., she built this wonderful Angelus Temple. It's beautiful, by the way. She had a radio station. And that's when, before there was ever televangelists, there were radio evangelists. And L.A. had several. McPherson became infamous after several high-profile scandals. There were allegations of affairs, a very public divorce, and a feud with her mother. And then she mysteriously vanished for a month before finally resurfacing. She claimed that she had been kidnapped, but prosecutors charged her with criminal conspiracy. The charges were later dropped. The press that had built her image now suddenly turned on her. The media in Los Angeles were fickle and sometimes cruel particularly when the stories starred women in the spotlight. So all these scandals are kind of swirling around. So you have this odd mix of decadence, religion. All these things are going around in the atmosphere. Los Angeles was trapped between two immovable forces, the church and the cinema. But neither side seemed shocked by very much until a modish couple from Texas arrived in L.A. in 1920. Clara transformed from small-town Texas girl to a Hollywood glam gal almost instantly. Clara was very attractive, blonde hair, that flapper figure. You know, she's a little more, a little more filled out, a little more shapely maybe than straight up and down, but still could fit into the clothes of the time. She looks dressed to the nines, and she paid attention to how she looked. Clara sought out the stage once again, this time as a chorus girl. Those pretty young women who appeared in musicals in Hollywood and at parties thrown by movie stars. Chorus girls were an important part of the city's history, but they also concerned conservatives in L.A. There was this fear that, of course, a party girl would be a party girl and that they would fall prey. But, of course, all you have to do is look at some of the movies that are being created to see that that image of a chorus girl or the B actress who's trying to make her way into things are alive and well and hugely important in that kind of crafting of what a Hollywood image is. Clara craved the attention, as many young women did. But her great-nephew, Daniel Phillips, says there was another reason she was so attracted to Hollywood. She was always looking for attention because she was the next to the youngest. She had an older brother and two sisters. And so she was always trying to get attention from her family and eventually from people that were not her family. And it's why she went into being a chorus girl, working in early movies out in California. 
Clara loved the attention, and so did other women she met working at a theater in Hollywood. Her former boss said that because of her beauty, Clara was the envy of the other performers, and one of those women would change her life forever. Another young singer and dancer named Peggy Caffey. Peggy had been a showgirl with Clara. They'd worked together, so they knew each other, but they hadn't seen each other for a while. It was just happenstance that they bumped into each other. She didn't really know anyone. Her husband was working a lot, and she was glad to reconnect with someone she knew. And so it felt kind of good for her. Oh, yeah, this is great. I haven't seen you in a long time. The pair spent time together. They talked about musicals, beauty trends, their dreams, and their husbands. And this all happened during Prohibition. In 1920, the federal government banned alcohol in hopes of reducing crime, but it really just made it worse by creating organized crime. Drinking was illegal, but it was easy to do in certain nightclubs called speakeasies. Just about anyone who wasn't a teetotaler went to them, including Clara and Peggy. They seemed to gravitate toward each other. I think she enjoyed the company of Clara because she was bright, effervescent, you know. She was her own special effect, (laughs) just walking around. But it was very apparent who was the leader of the relationship and who was the follower of the relationship. The dynamic of their relationship was important. So while Peggy and Clara socialized, Armour worked in his own way. He was always looking for marks. He was just looking for a place that was fertile for marks. That's all he wanted. You know, that's how he had all this money all the time, why he always had nice clothes and all these kind of things. It was a matter that he looked good, Clara looked good, and as long as he was able to keep the marks coming through the pipe, everything was fine. Clara and Armour presented well. They had a lovely house in West Hollywood, a car, a telephone, nice clothes— all of those important status symbols. Armour told everyone that he worked in oil. That was a lie. So he was not, as they say necessarily, an oil stock salesman when they were married in this nice house in California. Okay, he was always looking for the big scam. He had a scam going where he was selling Russian bonds, pre-communist bonds. Did pretty well by that scam. You know, he was selling people on the idea that these were bonds that they could go to the Russian royal family in exile and get redeemed. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Ain't going to happen. He also said he was a manager back in the 20s, before they moved out to California, of a rice farm. Rice farms are hard work. Rice farms are not really something I would see Armour doing. Armour didn't like to work, but he did look for any advantage like taking a job hauling around illegal alcohol. When times were not that good, he would drive a cab. When Prohibition came, he used the cab for delivering bootleg booze. And there were plenty of opportunities for someone who wanted to help the bootlegging business in L.A. in the 1920s. Gambling ships were off of the coast of Southern California where people could go out beyond the legal limit and get a drink. There was smuggling that was coming in along the beaches. There were people that called themselves importers rather than smugglers. And these were very wealthy people that might sit next to you in church and seem respectable, but really they had this underground business going. Armour's cover as a handsome, bright oil stock salesman was safe. For now. 
And Clara loved the new clothes, the socializing, and the handsome husband on her arm. Are we assuming that Clara knew everything that he was doing, that every shady deal she was aware of and just turned a blind eye or encouraged him? Which one do you think? Uh, She knew, and she was going to ride the ride for as long as she could. She became a person that was kind of almost an accomplice. You know, she never said anything that was wrong uh, as far as what he did, as long as he provided her with the lifestyle that she wanted to have. So Armour and Clara were truly happy. At least it seemed that way. She was good looking, and Mm -hmm. they both wanted that image. So is that image important in Hollywood in this time period? No. The image is always important in L.A. to this day. People go out on a limb financially to keep up that image. In the 20s, no different. Armour ran his cons, staying out of jail and in the good graces of his religious family. And Clara enjoyed being a bit player in Hollywood, even if she wasn't destined for stardom. But of course, everyone has secrets, especially in L.A. Well, both of them always fought a lot. It was like cats and dogs. And they would have fights, make up, have fights, make up. That was really their life. I don't think that Clara was a meek little housewife by any stretch. But on the other hand, I think that he held her firmly under his thumb. In part, it could have been any kind of coercion that he placed on her. I think it was just as much her blind devotion to him. But it was important to Armour's con that they keep up appearances, even if they fought frequently. So they continued to go to parties, and Armour continued to search for marks. Then he found one. An attractive 19-year-old widow named Alberta Meadows. Armour first met Alberta at a neighbor's house, a woman named Julia McElroy. Later on, both Armour and Clara saw Alberta at a party, and they chatted for a bit. Clara told her friend, we were all very friendly. She was a young widow. Her husband had been killed in a trolley accident there in L.A. I'm sure that there was some recompense for that from the trolley company. And there were plenty of accidents because these new railways were dangerous. People were just starting to use automobiles, and they would drive over rail crossings without looking. But that's not how Alberta's 22-year-old husband, Jesse, died in 1922. He was a steel worker, and he had been working on part of the track on East 7th Street when he was electrocuted. He and Alberta had been married less than a year, and she had been grieving ever since. She prayed at church and cried to her parents and sister. But she had to recover quickly because she needed to support herself. Alberta worked at the First National Bank as an expert on data organization. It was a good job, especially in a depressed economy. She may have been an obvious target for a con artist like Armour, but not an easy one. You know, here was a young widow that was trying to start her life over, and she was certainly uh, had her own means. She didn't need to have Armour to take care of her. And she had a good, solid family around her. That, that was certainly evident. But Armour was acting differently now. It was July of 1922. He was cold and distant. He seemed more irritable. They were fighting more often, and he snapped at Clara for no reason. Clara was upset much of the time. 
Her anxiety was building around her marriage, and she argued back. Armour was staying away at night. Her sister Ola May stayed at her house when he was gone. That really played into Clara's paranoia, and she decided that this was going to be something that she wasn't going to let stand. She had deep suspicions. She just needed proof. Clara looked down the street to Mrs. McElroy's house and walked there one afternoon. They sat and chatted. Clara started crying. She told Mrs. McElroy that she thought Armour was a cheater. Yes, said Mrs. McElroy. He is. What threw the whole thing into a frenzy was when Clara found out through the neighborhood busybody, her name was Mrs. McElroy, Armour had told her that he was going to leave her for Alberta. Mrs. McElroy had seen Armour leave their house late at night, and she was certain that she knew where he was going. Alberta had been to Mrs. McElroy's house often. She was friends with the woman's twin sons. Now the neighbor wanted to warn Clara that she would lose Armour, and quite soon, Mrs. McElroy should have known that she was triggering a woman who was already alarmed. The personality that Clara had was ripe for someone to whisper in her ear and say, He's messing around on you. He's going to leave you. Clara, I think, more than anything, did not want the relationship to end. She played on Clara's fears of her lifestyle changing. That fed into the paranoia, all of the things that were part of the demons that Clara had. She turned her into a weapon. Clara felt desperate and out of control. She immediately ran to her mother and to her sister, Ola May. She asked her friend from the chorus, Peggy Caffey, to meet for a drink. She cried over Alberta and Armour. Clara mourned the loss of her husband. Peggy was kind and she empathized. She was sure that her own husband was cheating too. Clara begged Peggy for help. She needed more proof than just the word of a neighborhood gossip. She started following Armour. They found a cab driver that would take her to places. His name was Streeter. He's with the Black and White Cab Company. He also said that she would follow Armour. She would also follow Alberta. Clara began monitoring her husband's late-night phone calls. She believed he was hiding something. That handsome man that she thought was her ticket to money and good clothes and whatever else she wanted out of life. Maybe when she felt him slipping away, that was her possession she felt slipping away. Either way, it's a powerful emotion, whether it's love or some perversion of what love should be, or if it's possession. Mm. Anytime you get that kind of a, a strong emotion, run. That was terrible news for Armour, though he didn't know it yet. What he did know was that his wife was becoming more violent. We can hear their friends trying to tell them, don't do this, don't do that. We've heard arguments, we've had fights, we've had police come by. During one fight, Clara even scaled a wall, trying to catch armor as he ran away. She yelled constantly at him. Clara even chased Armour down the street past a liquor store one time, screaming at him. So it's not like it was just confined to the house. People knew a little bit about, at least superficially knew about their relationship and that they had trouble. 
for a neighborhood gossip, this is just so much fun. If I were in her shoes, I'd have those curtains parted too, be looking out and see what was going on. I know, it might have seemed like a sudden change, but it really wasn't. Clara Phillips had always been erratic. When things were good, things were good. When things were not so good, that's when her jealousy, her narcissism came out. Violent outbursts. Violent outbursts, everything that had to do with be it armor or even her sisters. We'll talk more about those outbursts later. Now, all of Clara's anger was centered on her husband. Armor Phillips was clearly in danger. He had an unstable, jealous wife who wouldn't believe a word he said. Clara was unpredictable, one of the things that made her irresistible. But they had never fought like this. And what would happen next would stun even a jaded town like L.A. and certainly the rest of America. On this season of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. Peggy wanted to endear herself to Clara. She wanted to be like Clara. She wanted to have a friend like Clara. You can see it was a a massive head wound. There was a lot of blood, and there was also brain matter. I think he was looking for her. I knew he was stalking her. I knew that. I'd heard that. He was a psychopath with narcissistic tendencies. It's very apparent that you don't want to set someone like that off, because they'll basically go beyond the edge. They'll just go, and they'll lay waste, and then they'll forget about it. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now in hardback and ebooks. More information on the audiobook later. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Laura Sobel. Sound designer, Eric Friend. Composer, Curtis Heath. Artwork, Nick Toga. Executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical true crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmoremedia.com. Subscribe now on Amazon Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.